0: Good morning everyone, I'm Darren and I'm the one who's been leading the Deacon students this week on the mission that we've had and I've had the great joy and privilege of staying with John and Yvonne Huynh this week and their family. Right now we're reading from Acts, we're reading from Acts chapter 12, it should be on page 1153 of your Pew Bibles or up on the screen or you can just listen in, whatever works best for you. Before we read, let's briefly pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray to you in thanks that prayers are powerful, not because we or our prayers are powerful, but because you are powerful. As we hear these words about Jesus, these spiritual words about Jesus in Acts now, please help us to listen. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword, When he saw this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guard by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial... Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound in two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back, without opening it, and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You are out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison, tell James and the other brothers about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards in order that they' be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blasthus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they had depended on the king's country for their supply of food. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not a man! Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread.
1: Thank you for reading and uh, reading that with uh, intentional understanding to the text. And may God bless the reading of the word to our hearts today uh, Thank you John for um, welcoming me thank you to absent pastor Chris for inviting me um, uh, my name is John Wilson I'm a local lad uh, born and bred in the streets of Surrey Hills well I wasn't born on the street but <laughs> but but a, a, a Surrey Hills boy uh, went to one of the finest, Primary schools in the land are called Surrey Hills Primary School. You may have heard of it. Uh, A great school. And uh, I've been privileged to be a a pastor for the Presbyterian Church for a couple of years, for 35 years. And uh, so thank you. And also just a, a quick greeting from my wife Paula who would like to be here but she's required at our home church at Reservoir. Uh, this day, God is smiling sweetly on the Presbyterian Church at, at uh, Reservoir. and people are being revived in faith and people are finding faith. and uh, there's so many things happening there. Pastor Andrew uh, can scarcely keep up. It's just the joy of the Lord is shining. In churches like Surrey Hills, churches like Reservoir, and other churches across the spectrum. So greetings to you, but I'm here not to give greetings, but to open up the Word of God. And uh, I've purpose to open up a very exciting chapter of the Book of Acts. And um, I I hope that you might have that in front of you, perhaps open it up in your own Bible, because... I understand that you've not been reading through the book of Acts necessarily, so I'm just jumping into the book and I've jumped into chapter 12 because I like it. One of the great chapters of the Bible. Uh, Every time I open the Bible, there's the greatest chapter in the Bible for that moment. And Acts 12 right now is the great chapter of the Bible. And we sense in it, didn't we, as, as we just heard it read, or we, we, we sense there's a there's a there's something going on here that's a real sharp battle of wills. This is a contest. I mean, the red corner there's Herod, and the blue corner there's the church. I mean, it's no contest uh, visually. That is, at first glance, prima facie. Here we've got the Roman. Puppet king, Herod, with all his might. And we've got this little band of twelve disciples of Christ. But I want you also, as we just go through this, uh, consider the big picture. The big picture of what's going on here. Yes, it's a battle of wills between Herod and the early Christian church, but do you see that that's just a little act, that's just act one of the great stage play set in a much grander theatre of war. That this is part of the forces of darkness that have set themselves against the kingdom of Christ. We must see the bigger picture. There's a higher dimension that meets the than meets the eye, because that's that's the war that's played out in front of us in our in our city of Melbourne. In in our nation of Australia, in 21st century Australia, there is a war being played out. And one day, and I only know this by reading the last book of the Bible, we know how the battle's going to end. We know one day that the rider of the great white horse is going to slay the dragon of Babylon. We know the end of this. So as we're reading the the, the minutiae of this day's event, we're also mindful that we're engaged in this this battle and we have courage, dear Christian Church, because we know how it's ending. So we read today this, this small act in the grand theatre of Satan who... Thinks that he can resist the kingdom of God. Let's look at it again in Acts 12. And I'll do so into three heads. Uh, I'll just put those out in, in, in front of us now so that we can just stay with, stay with the, the message. There's Herod's scheming, uh, there's Herod's defeat, and thirdly, there's Herod's death. Hey, Pastor Christy, he please, because they all start with H. First of all, first of all, Herod's scheming. So look at the first six verses. I'll just read highlights of the first six verses of of, of Acts 12. King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. That's the opening verse. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. That's in the second verse. And then he proceeded to seize Peter also and put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. That's verses 3 and 4. Now, can you see in this opening section, we're introduced to the parties who are in the Act 1 of this stage play. We're introduced to Herod, aren't we? Uh, King Herod, he's called, verse 1. Now, we may remember that there are three Herods Who get a mention in the New Testament of the Scriptures? And this was the third of those three. This is the tyrant Herod Agrippa. He is the grandson. If you ever put him in family connection, he is the grandson of Herod the Great. Now, ordinarily, uh, if your grandfather was called Herod the Great or John the Great or something, you'd you'd, you'd be proud and you'd be you'd be you, you would want to be like Pop. But being grandson of Herod the Great means that you're the grandson of a mass murderer. Do you remember him? So he was the he was the one who gave order to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and the vicinity, the villages around Bethlehem, all boys who are two years old or under. So this is this is Herod Agrippa. Grandson of Herod the Great, who shared in some of the awful characteristics of his grandfather. Do you see also in Act Twelve we're introduced to James, briefly. <laughs> briefly, we meet James, uh, verse two. And so here is a first in the history of the Christian Church. Can you spot the first? So, Bible, Bible quiz, trivia night. Here's a question. Of the twelve disciples who followed Jesus, who was the first martyr? And the answer is James. So this is a turn of events. See, up to Acts 12, and I'm just summarising the eleven chapters of Acts now, the Christian church had been on a winning run One one exciting conversion after another. First of all, where did the Christian church begin? The day of Pentecost? Three thousand people came to know the Lord. And then there were the Samaritans who came to know the Lord. Then there was the Ethiopian eunuch. Surprising conversion. Then there was a very menacing Saul of Tarsus, one who couldn't possibly be converted. Then there was the high ranking army officer, Cornelius, far too important to be converted. But then there was the stunning revival in Antioch. First 11 chapters of Acts, that's it. Conversion after revival after conversion after revival. And here, here in Acts 12, we come to the ugly opposition inspired by Satan who raises his head. Now, James was not the first Christian to die faithfully in Christ. No, we, we have that inspiring testimony of Stephen in Acts 7, for example, and others also. But the death of James shatters the illusion that somehow the twelve were a specially protected species. And when you remember what James is noted for in Scripture, you might think that he might have thought that he deserved protection. After all, he was one of the intimate friends of Jesus. Do you remember Jesus' disciple twelve, so his first growth group was twelve, twelve lads, but then within that he had little growth groups within the big growth group. And do you remember the three that he often drew aside for prayer and scripture study and encouragement and special revelation? Who were they? James, John and Peter. So this was the the little growth group. And then I wonder if James remembered. <clears throat> I'm sure James, before he died, remembered. <clears throat> Perhaps with some embarrassment what he and his brother John did. Where's that recorded? Mark. Mark has it in chapter 10, I think. You know what they did. They came to Jesus one day and said, Lord, Lord, when your kingdom comes, can we have... Can we have the right-hand seat and the left-hand seat in the kingdom? Can we be there? Can we have a special dispensation, Lord? And then, remember what Jesus said to them? Yeah, that's all right, guys. But are you prepared to enter in to the baptism that I'm to be baptised with and will you drink the cup of the wrath of God, even even the cup of death, as I'm going to drink? And just, I'm just surmising now. I wonder if before James was executed, that he, oh, oh dear, I get it now, Lord. This is the cup. This is the cup. I'm about to drink it. So here's James, beheaded. And now there's eleven. And then in the play, we're also introduced to Peter. You see, what Herod did, grinning from ear to ear with success, was grab Peter. And if it only wasn't for the wrong timing, you know, this was the Easter weekend, you know, shop shut, entertainment venues gone, and, and you could just feel Herod's disappointment. He grabs Peter, he looks at the calendar, oh, darn, it's Good Friday, I can't do it. So what he does is, instead of executing, he puts him in, in prison. Because, uh, among other things, Herod was a political opportunist and he feared a mob reaction of the Passover pilgrims that were filling Jerusalem. And so he sent him to jail. But down the corridor with a heading over it, Death Row. And that's where Peter was sent. And knowing that Peter had escaped from prison before, Acts 5, Herod assigned a high security detail to guard Peter, and he assigns more Secret Service police to guard Peter than is normally assigned to protect President Obama on his overseas trips. Normally, it is sufficient to place a guard beside the prisoner, even to handcuff to one soldier. but we read here that Peter is handcuffed to two soldiers and guarded round the clock with four squads of four soldiers. So, this is Herod's scheming. This is Herod's attempt to diminish the power of the Christian church, to ridicule the name of Christ. This is Herod who's thinking let's take down two key men, let's take the two leading apostles, and then the rest will fold like a pack of cards. And the situation does look hopeless. If this is all we had in front of us, even just down to verse 4, what, a, what can a harmless little band of Christians do with their two fearless leaders gone and with the murderous Herod on the rampage? It's a really good question. What can the weak do? What can the disempowered do against the powerful? What can the weak do against the strong? Well, it's interesting, that question, what can we do? Do you know the other James, the other James, the one who wrote the letter James in the scripture, in 5.13, he asks, Is any of you in trouble? Then he should pray." Because the prayer of a righteous and a a man is is powerful and effective. And so finally, under this first head, we're introduced to the Christian church. Verses five and six. And this is like the the interlude between between Herod's scheming and, and And his he, and he, and downfall. See, finally, under this first, we, we see the church. This is like the intermission. We've got the, the great man's great schemes, Herod, but here's the church. So Peter was kept in prison. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him, earnestly praying. Herod had his soldiers, the church has the power of prayer. Peter was kept in prison, the church though was free to pray. When every other gate was locked and shut, the gate to heaven was wide open and the church stormed the gate of heaven. And Luke, who writes, remember Luke, who the author of the book of Acts, uses this particular expression, not just that the church was praying to God for him, but earnestly praying to God. This this was the agonising prayer. This was the consistent prayer. This was the storming the gates of heaven prayer. This is exactly the same word that Luke puts in to his Gospel describing the way Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Same author, same word. Remember Jesus' prayer being described by the writer Luke? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was, was found to be in prayer more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Earnestly. So here's, here's what bridges the gulf between the scheming of the great man Herod and the defeat of the great man Herod. The difference, the, the bridge between them is the Church at Prayer. There's a lesson. The Church at Prayer. Earnestly pleading with God. So that's a summary of of Herod's great scheming and trying to bring the church to its knees and to diminish the name of Christ, to ridicule Christ, to bring it to nothing. Under the second head, let's look at Herod's defeat though, and it sort of runs that whole story from verse 7 through to verse 19. That that amazing story of, of release of Peter, and in the release of Peter is the defeat of Herod. You see it begins in verse 7 with suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Quick, get up! And the chains fell off Peter, Peter's wrists. Now I'm not going to pause as long on this second stage as we did in the first, except to highlight some really amazing aspects to the story. I mean, this is a showstopper. This ought to be a film. I think of famous jail breakout films. I mean those famous ones that come to mind, The Great Escape, or Escape from Alcatraz, or Shawshank Redemption, or you can go on. And and what's common to those great film stories is they each tell of, of, of incredibly serious advanced planning and laborious preparation of the escape and and persevering against setback and nail biting finishes and will they get out and will they be found? But here here it's just it's just brilliant for its simplicity. There's there's none of that. This is outstanding escape. The chains, the guards, the prison doors the iron gate meant nothing to God and his angel. And Peter was instantly free. There was no struggle. A couple of other things are interesting in this story too. And that is that Peter obeyed without really knowing what was happening. Verse 9. The description in verse 9 is here's a guy his being set free in a miraculous way with the companionship of an angel of God, he had no idea what was going on. But he was prepared to follow the Lord's instruction. He had a sense of God's leading sufficient to tell him that the explanation will follow later. There's a lesson for us as well. Sometimes the explanation follows after obedience. And then the, a, a, another surprising twist in this, in this release is, is where Peter goes to. So he's, he's walked out into the street and then suddenly he turns and his, his angel companion's gone and he's alone in the street and what do I do? So I'd be heading home for a good night's rest. But Peter thinks, I wonder where the church is gathered. Isn't this brilliant? I wonder where Surrey Hills Presbyterian Church is gathering. Who's home? Pastor John's home, I reckon. And so Peter says, I know where to go. I know what will happen. It's night time. Everybody should be in bed, but I kind of think they're not. And so he went to Mark's mum's home because he knew that the Christians would be at Mark's mum's place and he knew that they'd be wanting to know that their prayers had been answered. And Acts 12 tells us that story about the knocking on the door and poor Rhoda who's only mentioned in Holy Scripture is, is just got this sort of well, it's got this embarrassing tweak to Rhoda's fame. She won't mind. She's a believer. She's in glory. But just an incidental lesson in this. I mean, we're we're kind of we could get embarrassed at these disciples and their reaction. But but no, this is just the honesty of of life as believer. And we can identify with some of this reaction and we're thankful to God for Holy Scripture that just tells the story and doesn't sweeten it up. I mean, if you guys were writing up a history of the Presbyterian Church of Surrey Hills, there are certain things that you wouldn't put in the text. I mean, something really embarrassing happened. Something, someone forgot something incredible You wouldn't put that in your history. So here's Rhoda. Afterwards, I can imagine her having a little chat with Luke. Oh, Luke, look, don't put this in that that, that I didn't and I left Peter outside. And the disciples are saying, don't put everything in. I know we stumbled. We didn't believe that Peter could be released. We actually said, Rhoda, you're mad. But no, here it is. It's just a—it's—it's it's, it's a side lesson. Perhaps it's a minor point, but it's very appealing. It just adds to our confidence in Holy Scripture. That Holy Scripture has not been doctored. It's not been sweetened. It, 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 it's, a, it's a true, inspired, inerrant account of the early church that we can identify with, and we love them for it, don't we? We love these early church. We love Rhoda because she was there praying all night. We love Rhoda, and we feel that we feel what she's done, and so we love God for writing up this in his wholly inspired, inerrant word. And then we read that Herod is totally embarrassed and defeated. And we read in the end of that little section, verses 18 and 19, the panic. There was no small panic or commotion among the soldiers. You know why, don't you? I mean, they're fearing now for their own reputation and then for their life. And so Herod takes it out on the 16 guards, which sounds to us our first reaction of, well, that's rough justice. Yeah, but it was common practice. It's a simple rule. If you're paid to guard a prisoner and your prisoner escapes, it's simple. You take the punishment that was coming to him. And then the third head of this chapter, verses um, 20 to the end, is Herod's death. So again, a very quick summary of events before we close with application of this text. But in those closing verses, especially, say, at verse 21, let me read that again. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, This... Is the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. So here's Herod who, who pops over to another one of his districts of responsibility. These puppet kings were given regions of the great Roman Empire and trusted with supervising life. So this was a, a little area of his electorate. This was like keeping the electorate happy. And he gave a speech to the people of Tyre and Sidon. And these people were very anxious to please Herod because through Herod they get food. And then following the delivery of his magisterial address, Herod receives the overstated praise of the people of Tyre and Sidon. And it's it's such inhuman nature to do that, isn't it? To look to political deliverers and and political messiahs and to make more out of leaders than, than we should. And so they praised Herod as if he was the Lord of the earth and the provider of food and the giver of all good gifts. And they praised him as if he was a god. And for Herod's part, well, he sits back and soaks it up. Well, taking glory to himself, that's what kings are born for, isn't it? And so he receives the judgment of the god that he refused to glorify. An angel of the Lord struck him down and died. And again, I just pause and ask: Does this interesting this, this description of a gruesome death? I mean, is it grandstanding? Is Luke getting all excited and say, so "When I come to this bit, I'm going to I'm going to pump this up. I'm going to make sure that in my story, Luke really uh, that Herod really cops it. Let's kick Herod when he's down." No, 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 no. This is not exaggeration. Everyone knew of Herod's painful end. It was written up in the Daily News. It was recorded in history. There's more history writers than Luke of this period of time. We, we just have to, for example, for one example, just pull off the shelf a, a book by Josephus. Josephus. He was a writer at this day. And he writes this up. He gives more description than Luke. Luke's, be, Luke's being very circumspect. Should we read what Josephus says about Herod's painful five-day clutching of the belly as he writhes in agony until eventually, at the end of the fifth day, he passes away? This is the end of someone who shakes his fist at the God, the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, where is the, where is the, the application? Where, where, where are the take-home lessons from this graphic Acts 12? Well, there's heaps. How long have we got? How long do you want before morning tea? There are so many wonderful, powerful, spiritual lessons. Let me give you three. And this is, this is the first. In the face... Let me express it this way. In the face of godless governments that we might face, remember the power of Christians at prayer. Surely that's an outstanding lesson. In the face of a godless government, remember the power of Christians at prayer. And I say this directly to you as Surrey Hills Presbyterian Church. This church, you earnest at prayer, can overcome the mightiest ruler of the land. That is one of the lessons I see in the account of Acts 12. I'm sure that's the reason that the Holy Spirit oversaw the writing of Acts 12. Are we a church? Is the Presbyterian Church of Victoria a mighty church at prayer? Is the Presbyterian Church of Victoria, of which we are proudly part, A church earnest in prayer. Earnest prayer. Now it has power, not because we're earnest. Try not to get the wrong spin. It's not because we're so good at persuading a reluctant God. No, no, no. Instead, earnest prayer is a demonstration to God that we are passionate about the things that God is passionate about. And when our will and our prayers measure up to the will and purpose and the passion of God, then in that sweet intersection there are staggering answers, staggering answers that we don't even dream about because our dreams are so constricted and so small and our faith is so small. So, first lesson, are you a church that prays earnestly about the things that God is earnest about? And are you careful and and keen about measuring up your prayers so that they fit and conform to the will of God? Are we a church that believes in prayer? The Presbyterian church. Do you know Do you know that there's an anagram for Presbyterian? Do you know there's an anagram for a Presbyterian? Best in prayer. Um, okay, all I'm saying is let's let's be that little quirk of the English language. Best in prayer. So, in the 21st Australia, we have governments that oppose Christ in different ways. We have governments that will interfere and restrict and oppose the Christian church. I would predict, and so I could be wrong, but I would predict more and more we're going to see this. We live in a time when our governments are going to be changing laws and will be calling Righteous, things that are unlawful and will be calling unrighteous things good. Well, just remember what a government is. A government is some some rule that according to Romans chapter 13, God has put into place and we can pray to God to move our governments. We can pray in the face of godless government. I want to mention, secondly, a second application or lesson from Acts 12. Perhaps it's a little bit more hidden, but as I read that and reread it, I see the Christian suffering. And I think, what's going on? Why? For example, we could say, why, why poor old James? Why did he cop it so young? And so the, the second lesson is, is going to be this. In, in, with the testimony of Christian suffering, I want you, dear Christian, to rest in the sovereignty of the love of God and be reminded that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. So here's uh, here's James in, in the prime of life having sat with Christ for those years ready to evangelise the world and he's martyred. And we think, why? Peter was about to be martyred but he's rescued. Now, life throws up these conundrums. Apply it To your own life? Have you got any conundrums in your mind that, Lord, this one was taken so young, this one had so much potential, this one lives free? My friend is suffering, I seem to not have that. I'm suffering, my friend does not see. All sorts of conundrums. Life is complicated, life is difficult. And I want to just remind us again that that the reasons why God does what he does and allows what he allows is often known to him. But we know that James graduated to glory ahead of Peter and the others. <coughs> he did not consider himself to be a loser in any way. <coughs> and it was not time for Peter to go to his heavenly home. And until it was time for Peter to go to his heavenly home, he was untouchable. He could not be harmed. It was time for James, he'd finished his course, he'd run his race, but it was not time for Peter. The Psalms remind us, don't they, that all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So we sometimes wonder, when the Lord calls home a faithful Christian and we think that's a bit early, we say, too soon. But wait a minute, wait a minute, too soon for who? James had lived a full life. And then he departed, and so did Peter. And both outcomes are loving and purposeful. Short life, long life, both are full lives under the sovereign purposes of God. So Christian, I do want to say, rest more confidently in the sovereign love and merciful purposes of God in your life. Do you not think that he's loving and merciful and purposeful? Then there's a third lesson I want to enter into before we close and and, and that is, I want to talk about the eternity aspect of this story and, and say that in the light of eternity, consider your destiny. Do you know him? There's a couple of deaths in this story that lead me to ask the question, because of the couple of deaths, if you were called upon to depart this life tonight, what would you face? So just answer yourself. I mean, James died, a martyr's death, and immediately, triumphantly, he passed into the presence of God. How dies passing away into the eternal separation of from God. Can you think of anything worse? It's it's not the way he died that matters. Fear not. But the destiny. There is nothing imaginably worse than passing into an eternal separation from God. So there's a warning here, the warning, this is the biblical warning of being a Herod, of taking glory to yourself, of being proud of what you have achieved, and resting in your own confidence, and not acknowledging the God who made you, the God who gave you gifts, the God who purposed for you to be here. Be careful, be careful. Who does your life glorify? Remember the biblical warning of Herod, who took glory to himself. Friend, it is not the agonizing stomach condition of Herod that to be feared. It's not his five days of bellyache to be feared. That's nothing compared to eternal separation from God and darkness of hell. I'm not warning fear death, I'm warning fear hell. The worms that ate the belly of Herod are one thing, but Jesus warns of being thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There's a worse worm than Herod's worms, says Jesus. And so I'm asking, if you were called upon to depart life tonight, what would you face? Who would be waiting for you? What's waiting for you? If you were called upon to depart tonight What would you say to your maker? Today's the day to turn to a loving and a merciful saviour who wants to wash clean all your sin. And he wants to give you in place of sin his perfect righteousness. And he wants to take the account of of sin that's weighing you down and relieve it by replacing it with a perfect righteousness of his own. Which is why we heard these words earlier in the service. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Turn to the Lord, he will have mercy on him. And to our God he will freely pardon. What I love about the Gospel is it's all about mercy, mercy, mercy. Instead of punishment, there is life. We don't deserve that, it's mercy. Mercy is when God replaces something that we deserve with something we don't deserve. Today's the day to turn to a loving Christ who hung on Calvary to take away all your sin. And then, having put your trust in Jesus, if you were to depart tonight, then you look to God and he will say, come, sister, come, brother, you're covered By Christ. Today's the day to turn to a loving and merciful Savior. So the deeper lesson inherent than than the manner of death, it's beyond death. Where will you be? What would you say to your Maker? Who will cover for you? Because on the day we depart, we can't just cover our head and and go all embarrassed before God and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I've, I've, I've not seen you, I've not glorified you. It's too late. You need someone to cover you, not your hands. You need someone else to cover you. And then that's Christ. That's Christ, Jesus the Lord. He wants to cover you. And that's why we don't mourn for James, the first apostle, because James is covered by the blood of Christ. We get disturbed by Herod's death, not because he had a bellyache. No, 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 no. We get concerned about Herod because he died and went to an eternity separated from the beauty and the love of Christ. Now let me conclude. Do you see Acts 12 is... Do you see the end play here? Look at the bookends. Look at verse 1. This time Herod arrested some who belonged to the church and intended to... So here's Herod breathing fire. Look at verse 24. But, so go from 1 to 24, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. Wow. Do you see the artistry of Luke? The beginning Herod is rampaging... But at the end, he's struck down and he dies in agony. At the beginning, James is dead, Peter's in prison, but in the end, Peter's free and the word of God triumphs. The word of a great man here it is silenced, but the word of the glorious Lord abounds. Friends, the word of the Lord Is unstoppable. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your holy and inspired and inerrant word that has brought us this glorious, moving, and tragic chapter of Scripture. Lord, please speak to us through this your word. And uh, Lord, may we as a church believe that uh, you're the sovereign God, that uh, your purpose and holy will rules, and that we may access the power of heaven through prayer. Help us to pray as a church. Help us to pray about our community. Help us to break down the strongholds of the evil one. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would apply whatever lesson you wish upon our heart today for having opened the word of God. Please bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.